Welcome to the Art School Podcast. I'm Ken Goshen. Today I'm speaking with Alex Mitto and James Miele. Alex and James are the co-founders of Superfine, the art fair that puts young professionals in touch with hundreds of cutting-edge works by the world's top emerging artists. Alex is a curator and entrepreneur. He holds a marketing degree from the University of Miami and has more than 16 years of experience in the lifestyle, art, and hospitality sectors. James is a fine arts photographer, designer, and sales expert. His artwork is frequently featured in publications such as Architectural Digest, High Fructose Magazine, and Artnet. He has exhibited in solo exhibitions in New York, Miami, and Paris. Alex, James, and their team have launched Superfine fairs in six U.S. cities, and they are growing each year. You can learn more about Superfine at superfine.world. And as always, this podcast is brought to you by the generosity of my Patreon supporters. You can become a supporter too at patreon.com slash Ken Goshen. For just $2 of support, you'll get access to all my Patreon-exclusive live events where you can watch me paint, ask me questions, but most importantly, you'll know your $2 go towards helping me produce free educational content that everyone can enjoy, like this show. To become a supporter, please visit patreon.com slash Ken Goshen. Last little note, there's also a totally free way to support the show, and it will take you less than 10 seconds. Just take out your phone, open the podcast app that you're using to listen to this episode, and rate this podcast five stars. Super easy, right? Every five-star review helps this show reach more people, so please take a moment to do it. If you're watching this on YouTube, just like and subscribe. Many thanks in advance. And now I bring you my conversation with Alex and James. Alex and James, thank you so much for taking the time for doing this. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Ken. So good to see you. Likewise. Um, so I think we can start by maybe both of you tell us a little bit about your background and how did it come to be that you are now running an art fair? I'll let James go first. All right. Um, well, besides Superfine, uh, I am also a fine artist myself. Um, so Superfine's journey kind of started with, uh, navigating my own art career, uh, just figuring out all the things that an artist should do and everything an artist shouldn't do, uh, what the art world doesn't exactly offer for artists and, uh, trying to navigate around that, uh, taking control of my own career. Um, and then besides that, then we were also, uh, producing events around New York city. Uh, we decided to bring one to Miami, uh, and that was the first super fine, uh, and then it, it just grew from there. Do you have, do you have anything to add to that? Or... Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, definitely. Um, so everything James said is completely true. Um, so basically I came from the hospitality industry where I've been basically my entire life. Um, my family's had restaurants. I grew up sleeping in booths and then in about, I think I moved to New York in 2011 and 2012, I started my first restaurant in New York uh, and I had it for about two and a half years. And right around the time I met James, I had started to uh, diverge into the art world. And I had 
you know, I'd been around art because I lived in Miami for five years before that. So I saw kind of the genesis of Art Basel. I saw Wynwood turn from like basically crack houses to like this hot gallery district with all these cool restaurants and everything. And so I was in New York and I was, you know, kind of spinning my wheels in the restaurant business and I wanted to get into events. So I started uh, catering art shows and I would do the cafes at other art fairs like Scope. Um, they were good friends of mine that I'd known for years. So, you know, it was an easy shoe in. Uh, and while I was there, my team was, you know, selling espressos and wines and I was walking around the shows and I'm looking and I'm like, you know, what do I see here and what's working and what isn't? And probably the genesis of Superfine was really about the what isn't question. And what wasn't working was just that you had people that could afford to buy art, that were excited about art, but there was this opacity to the market that was keeping them from being able to, and then hiding the artist behind the gallery. And so that's something, you know, as I met James and James is trying to, you know, explore his own career, um, we both saw this problem and really sought out to fix it. And that's really what happened with Superfine. It sort of organically came of that problem of like, what's wrong with the art market and how can we fix it with our different experiences? So. Wow. That sounds like a real perfect combination there. Somebody <laughs> coming from, from the business and hospitality world and somebody coming from the fine arts world coming together to fix all of our problems. It's, it's, uh, we're going we're gonna to drill into that okay. very, very soon. But first, I want to bring our listeners in who perhaps are not informed uh, totally about what art fairs really are. Maybe you can tell us, you know, what is an art fair broadly to those of us who haven't visited one or maybe people who live abroad who haven't even had art fairs in their environment. And specifically, how is it different from the gallery model? I can, I can take that. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's a good question because a year after our first Superfine, someone came up to me at an art fair, someone I still know today and said, so what do you do? And I said, well, I, I own an art fair. I said, what, which one? I said, Superfine. Where was it? And I told her, she said, that wasn't an art fair. I said, well, it is. I mean, that's, that's what we do. She said, but there's no galleries there. As you know, art fairs have galleries at them. I said, well, that's, that's not exactly the case. So an art fair is just a commercial space where it's a te- usually a temporary commercial space where people sell art to other people. That's what it really comes down to. Galleries, dealers, artists, curators, whatever you want to call it, people are selling art with- to other people. And also people can go just to experience art and to meet the, the artists and in some cases the galleries. Um, and how it, different, how it differentiates from a gallery, like in our case, is that the artists represent themselves at Superfine and at some of our other competitor affairs out there. Um, artists represent themselves. They meet the collectors one-on-one. And in our case, uh, there's no commission taken. So basically, we it's a, it's a client provider business model. So we have a client and we're a service provider. We provide the marketing, the infrastructure, the entire experience of the event. And then ultimately, the actual art selling is left to the artist. And we obviously provide a lot of guidance on that. But that's really where the difference is. Uh, there are definitely galleries where the artists participate more, where they're a bigger part of the program, but it's less of that kind of client-provider relationship that we have with Superfine. Mm. And then, do you want to add anything, James? Or No, I think you okay. just covered it. Cool. <laughs> I'll, I'll add a few words. I think there's also something that, that an art fair provides that is different from a gallery. Uh, it doesn't kind of assume any long-term relationship. Like an artist who has a large body of work, who wants to kind of 
take a shot at at selling all all of their wares can sign up for an art fair get accepted uh, through the curation process and if they do they can participate in then in one art fair then try another art fair and 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 really kind of navigate their own career in a more independent way uh, which is something that I I find pretty attractive I mean I've I've done two super fine fairs and had a lot of fun and have done other art fairs as well me and Alex met actually at the Governor Island art fair it's uh something that independent-minded control freaks like myself find uh, very <laughs> very attractive uh, I want to drill down a little bit more about something that James you said uh, in the in the first question you were saying that you were trying to navigate your own career and and kind of find ways to sidestep some of the common obstacles and when you say these things you know I totally understand and a lot of other people have question marks like what are these obstacles to people who are more kind of starting out and they want to know what they can expect when they finally kind of bloom and, and try to um, how would you say try to bring some business into the in, in, into the world like what were what were those obstacles that you were facing and and how has starting an art fair or engaging with the art fair industry really helped you with that yeah absolutely so I started out I wasn't uh, represented by a gallery or anything like that um, and I would say that my art uh, didn't exactly match up with what the galleries uh, around me in New York were looking for um, it was a little more accessible I think that they wanted to You know, if I were to work with them, uh, they would want me to like raise my prices a ton. I didn't want to because that's you know kind of where I was at. I was facing a, or um, you know getting into a groove with that. Um, so I was navigating, like you were just saying, like being in control of my own career, um, producing events for myself. Uh, we actually uh, had a solo show of my own work uh, in Nolita in uh, Lower Manhattan. And that was super fun to put on. Um, learned a lot from that as well. Uh, just kind of honed in my pricing more with that show. Um, and exactly, you know, what is the offering? Uh, you know, what pieces were people drawn to? Things like that. So it was really an opportunity to have a lot of people who hadn't seen my work before see it all at once. Um, and uh, to get that real-time feedback um, mm. with my art. Um, so that was something that I really, you know, benefit, uh, benefited from. And then, uh, besides that, we also did, um, uh, like Alex mentioned, we came, uh, from an events background, sort of events and hospitality. Um, so we actually exhibited in a few other art fairs, um, kind of with, <laughs> we Forgot somehow blocked that. that out of our memories. Forgot um, that. but, <laughs> um, so we, they were sort of like a, a group show within the booth that we had. Um, so it was me and uh, three or four other artists uh, were part of the booth. Um, so that was actually very specifically with starting Superfine. That um, was helping me understand more about my own art, but more about how art fairs run as well. Um, and it was, it felt like it was just about like, an opening night where you, you know, drink champagne, you say hello to people, you're, you don't sell art. And then the rest of the time is just very quiet and depressing. And you just have people kind of wandering around who, you know, have either never bought art before. And they're just like, I, you know, I heard about this event, I'm here to look around. Or you have a few people who are, you know, walking around, but you know, there's just not enough of them to, to spread the love. Um, 
And then I did end up working with a gallery. Ultimately, uh, I had a show uh, in Europe, uh, which was really exciting. Uh, it felt like, you know, this was the next step. This is what I needed to do with my career. Um, and then it ended up being just a lot of costs uh, and, you know, not all it's cracked up to be. It's, you know, for a lot of artists where that is your goal, um, there are galleries that are really good to work with um, where, like you mentioned, you're not. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. Like in this exclusive relationship where it's limiting you from doing other things with your career. Um, uh, but this was not really that case. It was sort of, you know, I, I was uh, indebted to the gallery before I even got anything out of it. Um, and uh, yeah, it just it, like the, you know, their focus is not necessarily on me. I was just one of, you know, many artists that they were showing. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so I, I, it wasn't really for me. Uh, and, and I learned something from it. Yeah. yeah. We can't say Paris on the podcast. No. Oh, <laughs> we could say Paris. It was Paris. It was Paris. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 have, I have a couple of thoughts. It's okay to jump yeah, in. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, kind of talking, I, I'll go backwards, kind of yeah. talking about the, um, the gallery experience James is talking about, we happen to still be friends with the gallery owner. I mean, like, you know, the gallery experience can work for artists. It just is a very long game and it, you are definitely going to be front end loading your cost, believe it or not, more than participating in an art fair. If you participate in an art fair, you know, your costs, it's cost this much travel booth, whatever. It's, it's very clear <clears throat> working with a gallery and in, in, in that kind of relationship. Um, it's a lot of it comes down to, sacrificing other opportunities if you go that full kind of gallery route um to really get the most out of it you kind of have to partner with them and kind of stay with them long term and you kind of have to jump through the hoops like they're not just going to throw up a solo show for you every two months i mean every two years is standard but with galleries expanding their programs and trying to get more artists into it it might be every three years and then a, a group show here and there so you really have to ask yourself how much do I want to commit to that? And in many cases, I would suggest not that much. Um, if, if, again, like James mentioned, if you're able to diversify, like if you're able to, you know, put on a show with a gallery in Paris, right? And it's like, okay, I'm going to send my work there. We have a clear contract. Like, you know, if it, whatever doesn't sell, you send it back in 45 days. Like if there's any costs, they're very clear. Um, that's totally fine. I would never tell someone not to do that. But like kind of you know, putting your eggs in one basket is the enemy of success in this business. And um, James also mentioned putting on his own show. Not a lot of artists do that. That's such a cool thing to do. And it doesn't cost that much. And you can do it almost anywhere. And, you know, here's a little hint. Um, New York City right now, there's so much empty retail. And yes, you've heard people are moving out of New York, the coronavirus, whatever. That's temporary. I mean, there's still so many affluent people in New York and more people will be moving back and, you know, people didn't sell their apartments. So 
um, take advantage of that, you know, find a cool vacant space, negotiate with the property owner, call the number on the window and find out who runs it and just do it. Just take over. Uh, Miami beach is the same way right now. There's, I mean, it's a, it's a strange economy, but it's going to improve. So really it's a great time to put on your own show. Um, a friend of mine is a curator who took a gallery space in Chinatown and we went to see his show and I was like, is that one? No, that one sold, 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 sold. I mean, this is in the middle of the pandemic. He's seeing one customer at a time every few hours. And it still like was a really positive experience. So, um, that was really awesome. Um, yeah, a couple, yeah, we definitely learned lessons. I mean, we had, you know, like one person on one shoulder saying like, do this, raise the prices. Another person who is on our team being like, I think they should be like here. And we're like, what do we do? And so I think that yeah. a lot of lessons were so learned there. I, I, I mentioned that there was some lessons learned. I didn't say what the lessons were. Uh, I will, I will tell you. What yeah, the that's good. The uh, <laughs> yeah. So uh, we were working with a curator on the show and super nice guy. Uh, there, these are all super nice people. <laughs> you're, all, you're, all, you're all nice. If you're listening, you're nice. We like you still. Okay. Good. So, you know, we, we like everyone. We were new to this. Um, and this curator, uh, he said that he had this one guy uh, who was planning to come to the show. He was really interested in my art. And he's a billionaire. He's a billionaire. Yeah. I'm like, sweet. That's amazing. Yeah. So I was totally waiting for this guy to show up and buy like 50 of my pieces. That's what my mind was saying. I was like, this he's going to like need it for some project. Amazing. Um, and yeah, I just kind of waited for him to show up. He didn't. Maybe he had like some dinner plans. Maybe he, you know, was just not actually as interested as the person said, whatever it was, he didn't show up. Um, but I really should have focused on, you know, th there was a, a steady number of people coming through the door, but if I had focused more on marketing this show uh, and bringing as many people as I could to it, instead of just like setting up shop and waiting for people to come and waiting for this curator to, you know, the people yep. he invited to come as well. Um, I think I would have sold a lot more art or even if I didn't sell it immediately because like people were seeing it for the first time, I would have made relationships with people who were just really excited about my art and I could keep in touch with them over time. And then they would buy from me over time. And like the, you know, the results of the show would happen, um, like over the course yeah. of several months, you know, a couple of years. Um, but instead it was, it was a really fun show that I learned a lot of lessons. <laughs> yeah. I, I would actually say that probably the issue, cause this is the thing about marketing, right? Like people think about marketing, they think advertising, they're like advertising, right? Marketing is five P's, which I'm probably going to mess up here despite, you know, uh, <laughs> it's promotion, product placement, positioning. And what am I missing here? What's the last P? Did you already say, did you said promotion? promotion? Promotion, product, placement, pricing. Did I say pricing? You know, it was Okay, so pricing, <laughs> right? So, so, pro, so product and pricing. Wait, I want to I wanna interject for one second. I feel like we're hitting gold here. So take your time. Okay. Take your time, Alex. Let's let's lay this out. Everybody's just zeroed in on this right now. <laughs> the, the, the five P's of marketing are product, pricing, placement, promotion, and positioning. Product, pricing, placement, promotion, positioning. Those are the five Ps. So do you hear advertising in there anywhere? No. Advertising is a component of promotion. So it's not even a main P. It's like a sub P. So people look at marketing, they're like, oh, that's, you know, running ads and like bringing people. Well, a huge, huge, like the most important pillar of marketing is your product and your pricing. And 
I would argue, James, that it wasn't that we needed to do more promotion and marketing. We had, you know, 750 to a thousand people showed up at your show. And a lot of them were like, probably <laughs> could have bought art. Um, where I think we went wrong is probably the pricing and not paying attention to that. And we were thinking with the billionaire in mind and what we were told. And I think, you know, Greg Spielberg said, I think they should be about 250, 300 because you didn't, mm-hmm. you hadn't had a solo show. You had never printed your work on fine paper before. And we went with the other advice. Well, yeah. What were they like? 700, $700. Yeah. Dollars. And you had, an, <laughs> which is not a crazy amount. And we've spent personally on photographs up. We spent $5,000 on photographs from other artists, but at the time you had never exhibited anywhere. Yeah. So you have people coming through the door who are like, you know, like two, $300. It was really easy for them. And then they're a collector and you can nurture the relationship. Yeah. And I think that's the big lesson is that part of the marketing, which is, you're actually right. We should have done better marketing. But I think it really came down to the pricing and also the product because we printed so many photos. James had done 365 photos that year, one every day. Yeah. And we we printed all of them for the show because we thought that was like yeah. the hook. We were there, very into narrative. At the there time. were something um, like there was something like 56 that were all 16 by 20. Yeah. Uh, and then a few giant ones. And then the other 300 were all they were four, four by, by fours, four, which was and yeah. just like walls it, it was it was, it was neat it was, it was really neat. cool it was really neat <laughs> but i think the you know the larger works because we spent so much money printing photos uh we we did we didn't display them and frame them as well as we should yeah. have so yeah. i think that that's another thing with on the product side there was a disconnect between the product and the pricing mm-hmm. so really really important for artists listening out there to think about that not just how many people you invite but how the people you invite the people walking through the doors sync up to what you're offering um, and that I think is probably one of the bigger lessons of that show, but it was yes. a great experience and I, I loved it. And I think that's the end of my commentary on your commentary. <laughs> so, yeah. But it is not the end of the survey of all the pillars of marketing. So we, we, we covered, we talked, we talked, we talked product and we talked pricing and how important it is to manage those relationships, but we have three more P's to go. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, I'll, I'll, I'll run through it really quickly for everybody. So, um, Placement is literally what it sounds like. It's like, where is it placed? Um, huge for art. Let's call that curation for art. It's one thing we do with Superfine and Ken knows all too well. Um, we are extremely rigorous on the curatorial process. And the reason we're like that is because if you go to other art fairs that don't do that, and I'm talking the ones that work with galleries, whatever you think the galleries know how, they don't. And it's floor to ceiling and you don't know where to look. And it's just like, it's a mess. And Um, so that's really important with art is kind of keeping, you know, when you're doing a fair or a gallery, yeah, you want to show everything, but don't show, make it look good. Like bring it to eye level where the average person who's between, you know, five foot one and six foot one is basically looking at your art in the face, not looking four feet up to see it. Unless maybe that's exactly how it's meant to be seen. It's a cloud, it's a sign, whatever, but you know, be really intentional in your placement. Um, I'll also say one thing we talk about a lot at Superfine is um, a spread, a spread of sizes and prices. So in an art fair environment or a pop-up show, and I'm actually looking at Ken's wall right now, and I'm seeing exactly that. I'm seeing a larger piece that he's probably asking a little more for. I'm seeing small pieces to the right and medium in the middle. And that's so important because someone's walking into a, a gallery, a pop-up gallery that you put on yourself like James's show or a fair booth they don't know your work yet and they may be just on a budget. They didn't come out planning to spend three, $4,000, but maybe they can part with three, $400. And also just think about like the space this might occupy in their home. 
it's very easy for someone to say, oh, honey, like that one right there, that could go like in the bathroom or the hallway or a little spot. But it's a much different conversation. Like that will be the biggest thing you see when you walk in the door. That might need a few months of like relationship building and you send a photo to them and they think about it. But like they might just grab something there and then it reminds them of you and you can continue that relationship. So placement, I mean, it's kind of broad, but it includes like where you hang things on the wall, but also that spread of sizes and prices. Positioning is our friend Marina, we have on the podcast often from the artist advisory. She often talks about like, you know, cause she's also super fashionable. Um, she was actually featured in New York post with like this amazing photo of her in her apartment the other day. Um, fashionable and great with art too. And she now guys analogizes it to the fashion world. Like if you're a designer, you have the option of being at target or Neiman Marcus. You also have the option of being at both and plenty of designers do, but they're, intentional about it. You can't just make something and then throw it in whatever environment, you know, Yeah. Like, how, how many yeah. shows can I get? How many right. galleries can I work with? Those it, are yeah. bad metrics. Like how many shows, how many galleries you're, think you're, about you're like, going to be spreading yep. yourself too thin instead yep. of focusing in on yep. exactly what's the best match for you. Yeah. So looking for that match, think of it as dating, like look at, look at that match. Like, you know, if you're doing a pop-up in Bushwick in a warehouse in a back alley and like, it's your buddy's like living room or something. I mean, that's your positioning. You have, to, if you're okay with that, that's fine. I'm not, I'm not begrudging it, but you have to kind of lean into that. If you're doing, if you're doing a collaboration with Neiman Marcus, lean into that. If you're, you know, showing at Superfine, think about that too, but you're positioning and try to make it consistent. Cause you don't want like gallery X picking up your work and now it's $4,000 there. And at the same piece was that super fine for 700. It's just, you don't keep the trust of your audience. Um, so we got positioning, we got placement and promotion, right? Promotion. Again, it's the obvious part of marketing. Everyone knows it, but, um, you know, it, it includes your advertising. Um, I always draw this line because a lot of people don't understand this, but there's organic social media and there's social media advertising. They bear very little in common, except they use the same platform. That's it. Um, and I, I struggle with this. I, in my other business too, I struggle to explain that all the time. Um, it's worth it for artists to explore the advertising side of social media. So uh, Facebook ads, Instagram ads, Google ads, even if it's five bucks a day, um, it's very, very worth it to learn how to do it and tr start driving traffic to your website that way. It's a little stigmatized because people are like, oh, well, I don't like ads. But statistically speaking, people click on ads, especially when they're done right. And you can find a million how-tos online about how to do them well. Um, it also includes the organic side of it. So you're, obviously, Ken has an amazing Instagram uh, organic side. Superfine has a pretty good one too. Um, and it is really powerful, and especially if you use it well. Um, so that fits into your promotion as well. That is gold. Okay, so <laughs> super important. I hope everybody's already frantically looking for pens to take notes. Uh, luckily, you can rewind and 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 uh, listen to all of this again. Uh, I want to go a little deeper into something that came up quite a few times: this relationship between the product that you have and the pricing that you put on it, and how people can go wrong with that. What are some ways? to really just ballpark because people who just come out, let's say uh, artists have this dream where we're just going to be vampires and be in our studios all day. And just, you know, one day we're just going to venture out there into the world with this amazing body of work and everything's going to get snatched off the wall, but it's, it's really not so simple. 
And, and a lot of it really has to do with what you were talking about, pricing the work correctly. So how does one even start to do that right? Yeah. Do you mind if I take that? Absolutely. Cool. Okay. Yeah. So it, I like that you use the word ballpark because there's no actual science to it. It's not just, ah, uh, yes, you know, every artist should charge $200 a square inch for their art. It's, it's nothing like that. It needs to start from a, a place that's pretty accurate and then you tweak from there. Um, so one thing that I've done with my own art um, and we do recommend for artists to do is uh, interview people who are your client base, whether they've literally bought art from you or they fit exactly the, you know, the persona of the person uh, that you would like to be selling your art to. Uh, we can dive more into personas as we well, will, if we you should. like, and yeah, we should, we should. Um, but basically a person. That's another P. That's yes, the, that's exactly. The P. Oh my God. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> um, but basically, uh, it's just someone who, uh, matches up with like, you know, the, the audience type, someone that you could target in advertising or something like that. Um, and that person is the one who wants to buy your art, uh, this archetype of a person anyway, but we can, we can talk more about that in a bit, but, um, so you should interview people. And not just talk about pricing, but talk about like a, a few different aspects of, you know, what, what triggers them or inspires them to, to buy art. Um, and specifically with your art, what do they like about it? Um, you know, throw out some numbers of what you already think uh, might be good for your own art uh, and see how they react. Are they like, you know, are they like, oh my God, of course I would buy that in a second. You might be suggesting a number that's actually too low. Um, mm -hmm. if, if they're like, uh, no, that's ridiculous. You're crazy. Obviously it's too high. What you want is you want to try and get that like bit of hesitation, but, uh, where they ultimately say that, yes, I want to buy it. That's, that's where you're getting that perfect number where there's a little bit of friction, uh, but they ultimately do buy it. Um, besides that, I would highly recommend, uh, looking at other artists that you, um, you know, look up to, uh, and, and see what they're pricing their art. Now, the caveat there is look at artists who are selling art. Don't just look at art you like and be like, oh my God, I love this, you know, photographer and they're selling their prints for like $3,000 for a, a little piece, whatever. And like, I want to be like that too. I'm going to sell, are they actually selling <laughs> the, yep. the pieces? That's the question. Um, so look and see artists that you like who are like just you know clearly producing work and selling it um a lot of artists on instagram they'll update their captions when a piece is sold so you can see like oh yes it looks like there's a lot of action going on here um and then looking at their prices seeing how it matches up to your art with like the style the complexity the the size uh what kind of paint you use or what kind of paper you print your photos on whatever it is uh, and go from there. Um, those are some ways I would suggest like just getting started with like yeah. a pretty accurate number. Yeah. And I do want to add, while there isn't a science, we actually did publish an art pricing matrix, um, which is pretty accurate. Uh, it's at least a good start. And James just mentioned a couple of things, uh, that, that price functions by and probably the two most important ones. And you kind of got to get outside of your art world, art school head, and just think like how it appears from the buyer's perspective, size and complexity size and perceived complexity. So 
in, if your work doesn't come off as if it was done complex, complexly or didn't take mm-hmm. a lot of time, Ken and I had a great conversation about this recently. You have to kind of find a way to prove that, right? So if I'm looking at this and I'm like, this is just a snapshot. Like why, you know, why is it a thousand dollars? You have to have an answer instead of being offended. Well, I'm offended. I went to whatever, like you need to explain. Ken said something wonderful, which is that it's not the 10 seconds it take, took to take the photo. It's the 32 years that it took me to grow into like being able to take this photo. So you gotta be ready with an answer on that. But basically the size and the perceived complexity of the work um, are going to be the things that dictate your price as an emerging artist. Um, someone is not necessarily off the bat going to be paying like a ton for us, you know, four by four work. We hope that you grow into the point where that is, oh my gosh, at least I got one piece by this artist. Um, but those are the early things to look for. And there's a matrix it's on our website. Yes. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's pretty good. Um, could thing- you, could you give us the address so that people can go and look at it? Can we give it to you for the show notes later so we can? Oh, find yeah, it? sure. It's on. Okay. So if you're listening to this, people, it's already there. It's in the yeah, show notes right now. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Um, yeah, we, I don't know exactly the URL right now. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention about kind of what James said is, and I kind of hit it before, but like get out of your art world mindset when you're thinking about your pricing. 99% of potential collectors are not part of the art world. And there is this sort of like, I don't know, uh, like excitement among artists or galleries. Like, oh, I hope a, a collector collects me. But most collectors are not capital C collectors. There's very few of those. And they're, it's hard to even grow that group. It just doesn't grow. So, but there's so many people out there who love art and who have nice homes and have empty walls and would love to connect with and support artists. Um, but that's the person you have to think about and think about what they are willing to spend. And then like James said, you're looking for that hesitation point. Like you don't want it to be like, oh yeah, of course, here's like a hundred bucks. Thanks. You know? Um, and you also don't want to be like the guy who has the gallery show. You're sitting there waiting and you're, all your prices are too high and no one buys anything. And they tell you great show, have a nice life. Um, you want to be right at that point where they're like 2000. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> like you, you want to be right there, like right at that point. Um, and that takes a little back and forth and a little bit of trial and error, to be honest. Like, I mean, I can give you the matrix. I can tell you what to do, but I don't, you know, every, it's a unique thing about artists. Every single artist's work is inherently different. Even artists who do stuff other people do, it's still different. It's in the, your hand, it's in your eye. So I can't tell you exactly, but a little trial and error, art fairs are a great way to get that. Uh, pop-up shows, things that you actually interact with people and you see that look on their face. That's where you learn. Like if it's 2000 and they're like, they walk away, maybe they don't walk away at 1700, you know, maybe you don't have to do a 60% off sale. You can just tweak a little bit. Um, and there's one other thing I wanted to mention about this. Um, it has escaped me though. All right. I'm going to, so, I'm, I'm, so I'm going to pick up a thread and then when you, when you, when it comes back, we'll, we'll, we'll hit on it again. So something important that you said that I totally relate to, but I feel like people who aren't art school graduates may not understand. Can you explain a little bit what you mean by outside the quote art world? And what do you mean by capital C collector? Sure. Absolutely. So when I say capital C collector, I basically mean that person who identifies as an art collector who has, you know, dozens to hundreds to thousands of works, maybe, you know, has a wing at a museum and the person who, when they walk into an art fair or a gallery, everyone rushes over to them. They tend to be a little older, not always, 
Um, you know, there's certain commonalities. So I don't, I don't want to go too deep into that, but there's certain commonalities that I, I, I've seen artists salivate when they see a couple that looks like this walk in the door. And my advice is just, just shake that. Don't worry about it because for one thing, those capital C big name collectors, millionaires, billionaires, people with museum wings, they, they have tastes and they know their tastes. They know exactly what they want. So they're probably either going to be attracted to your work or not. Like, it's like you fawning over them and befriending them on Facebook and really, you know, whatever, it probably isn't going to go anywhere. So I would just shake that and just focus on, you know, making connections with everybody who's interested in your work. Um, so it, does that explain the capital C collector thing a bit? Like what I mean by that versus someone who collects art with a mm -hmm. lowercase C, like just someone who I love art. I want to put art on my wall. I love artists, but I'm not like self-identifying and that's not a bad thing. Like I would say we almost, we do self-identify as collectors, but that's okay. And we kind of went through a journey and got there, but like, it's, um, it's nothing wrong with that, but also just emphasizing that so many people out there may have never bought art. Maybe they bought one or two pieces and they could totally be your collectors. And that's, you know, the majority of people out there who can buy art fit that profile. Oh, can, yeah, can I tell a tangent story? Sure. So Alex and I went to an art fair, uh, out of, out of the, the country. Uh, I'll, I'll also be, you know, mysterious about where it was. It was Sonomaco. Uh, it was so, City. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was Sonomaco. I'm actually, I'm actually thinking of a different story. Oh, but, um, material or no, no, uh, uh, Puerto Rico. Oh, well, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So go on. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so we went to this dinner that it was like for all of these collectors, uh, to, to go to, and we were invited as well. Um, and we were talking to this guy, he was like super famous collector, like, you know, buys pieces for like, you know, million. Eight, eight, yeah. $80,000 $80, minimum. Um, but I'm talking like 800, 900,000. We were talking yeah, about like yeah. flip flipping pieces for 1.5 million. I mean, yeah. it was like big collecting. And he was, I think he was invited and flown in from somewhere else to come to the art fair. Um, and he was telling us that he hadn't bought a piece of art in like years. three years, five years, years, years lot, many years. Um, and, but he just kept getting invitations to these things. So he kind of like kept up the appearance that like, oh yes, I'm, you know, a famous collector and I get invited to all these dinners and travel around the world, even though I don't currently buy art. Not saying that anyone who's known for being a collector is in that same situation where they're kind of like done buying art, uh, at least for the moment. Yeah. But, you know, you're trying to pine over someone who is has a lot of art already versus that person who either maybe has never collected art or is just starting and they're really excited. Um, and, you know, they're on the market to, to buy art. Um, that is the person that you should be thinking about. Um, yeah, we, we have a, a a friend in Miami who she had a house, was kind of like stopped buying art um, because her house was full. Uh, and then she she bought another house and had <laughs> a bunch of empty walls. Bought and then she art. went on an art spending yeah. frenzy for and, like a year. Right, <laughs> and right. she and, just and, anytime we'd go out with her, she'd buy like three pieces. Yeah. Um and yeah. I was I was gonna comment on that because that's something, you know instead of just looking at someone as a collector, thinking about everybody and their stages of life, life cycle. And um, there's a lot of older people. Cause I think older people often, when I, I didn't want to, I said, I didn't want to go too deep into it, but when you see an older, clearly wealthy person walking into an art show, I mean, the instinct is like, that person's going to make my career. They're going to buy all my art, but life cycle wise, even millionaires and billionaires, 
they are moving from their three-story Connecticut mansion to their uh, Delray Beach condo, and they're actually shrinking their assets. They're actually like selling things and because they don't want to pass on liabilities to their kids. I mean, these are things even the super wealthy are like when they're over 65, 70 are starting to think like literally like, you know, I'm not buying another mansion because I don't want to walk up flights of stairs. So I want to, you know, something one story. So there's, there's not as many triggers for them to buy art. We saw that actually in Boca Raton. Mm -hmm. Um, I was going to mention that. (laughs) We participated in an art fair. Like it was sort of, we had already started super fine in the middle between um, the first and second show. Mm -hmm. James's work was hanging at an art fair. So we were there helping out. And the fair had 13, 14,000 attendees. I don't think anybody walked in the door with a net worth below a million dollars. I mean, it was literally just all millionaires. They were all very old and nobody bought anything. Um, I mean, we did meet one great person there as a collector that we've been friends with for years now. Um, but it's, it was minimal. Like the amount of people who bought art, it was, it was, you know, they bought very small and expensive things. You would think that they're very wealthy. They're buying big things, but they've already like shrunk their lifestyle. So they're not doing that. They're excited to see a show, but they're not like doling out the, the, the dollars. I actually sold pretty well at that show, you but, did, you did. You but did. My, my, yeah. like I had adjusted my, the prices of yeah. my pieces by then. And I was only selling them for a few hundred dollars. They were pretty but, small. So it was yeah. like, you know, it was like a trinket that they could walk out with um, versus I think that a lot of the galleries were thinking like big money, you know, big money. Yeah. We're going to have these super big expensive pieces and no one was looking for that. Yeah. So it like so, not much sold again. I mean, yeah. you know, like broad strokes, you're going to have better luck with 30 year olds than you are with 65 year olds, generally speaking. Um, and you asked me another question, Ken. What was the second one you said about? <laughs> I, I I don't know about the second one, but I I feel like we're touching on a subject that we have to Ooh. focus in on. Okay, we're really discussing something that a lot of artists are ignoring to some degree. They're thinking, "I'm gonna make the best painting out there," and then whoever buys it buys it. You know, man. Like I don't care who buys it. And I think you're you're really touching on on something that clearly you're you're experts at. We are imagining the buyer, and I think that that right. is something we're gonna call the the six P of 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 whatever marketing. It's gonna be the, pers- per- the, the, the personas, right? So maybe you can kind of explain to us why is it even important that we envision sure. this person in our mind? So that was actually the thing I forgot before. Ah, there you go. So we're good. There we're you good. go. So there, there's two words we use. One is persona and the other is avatar. It just means the same thing. I like avatar because I, like, I imagine playing like Second Life or The Sims and creating a person. Um, And if you can take one thing down from this podcast, like one thing, it all starts with the avatar or the persona. That is it. You cannot do anything without it. There is no successful business that doesn't do that. Everyone does it. If you are buying something, you are another business's avatar right now. You are part of, they know you will buy it. Um, You have to think of that first. So James mentioned interviews. That's huge. But interviews start with understanding your persona or your avatar. If you want a simple avatar worksheet, email me, director at superfine.world. I'll send you one. It's We, we developed it over the years. We use it for our, our artist clients. We use it for our buyers um, of tickets. And also our ticket buyers at our shows are also art buyers. So we think about you know who they are. Um, the important thing here is to ha- A, have fun doing it. Let let the ideas flow freely. It shouldn't take you forever. You shouldn't puzzle over creating an avatar. Most people have them in their head and can do it in five to 10 minutes. You sit down and you envision your buyer. What are they wearing? Are they wearing Levi's? Are they wearing, um, you know, 
uh, Donna Karan? Are they, uh, do they live in the Hamptons? Do they live in Brooklyn? Do they live in LA? What neighborhood in LA? Do they live in Silver Lake? Do they live in Hollywood? I mean, these are, you know, that as a person living in cities or wherever you live, you know, that Silver Lake and Hollywood are different. Try to figure out why and try to figure out where your, where your art fits, who your art fits with, you know, or your, how you develop your avatars. Don't censor yourself. Like, let it be the person who buys your art and think about like a couple ways to start with that. Again, you know, if you want the sheet, email me, otherwise Google avatar worksheet, you'll find one or a customer persona worksheet. You'll find one. Um, the idea is to get really granular and, and really think about what everything, where people shop, what they wear, what they read. Um, and I, I say everything comes from that because I'll tell you a few things that, that, that derive from that. One is the language you use when addressing your buyers. That means on your website. That means in your press releases. That means on the tags on your walls when you're at an art fair or gallery. Everything, the way you address your buyers. Would you address a 30-year-old Silicon Valley guy the same as a 65-year-old woman in Boca Raton? Probably not. Let's be realistic. You probably wouldn't. So that's where you identify who they are and how you speak to them and literally how you talk, but also your website, all your materials. Um, so that comes from it. Your, um, your, your pricing comes from it because it's helping you identify like, you know, what, what income levels this person in, what is their disposable income? Like what kind of furniture do they buy? Are they shopping Ikea or are they shopping restoration hardware? I mean, that helps you identify that. Um, basically all those five P's we just talked about, they all flow down from understanding who your customer is, who your buyer is. Um, yeah, it's, it's such a, such a valuable tool and you can use it for like, I mean, literally everything comes from that. I was actually going to mention that earlier. So, um, I think Alex, you had mentioned something that, uh, even if your artwork is like the same size as another painting, like same oil, whatever, it might not be exactly the same price or you might not sell it. So like if that person is selling a piece for $3,000 and then you're like, you know, trying to sell one for the same price. Well, if your audience isn't the same, they might not be buying it at that same price level. Right. So, right. you know, you, you can't just be like, oh, my art is worth this much because, you know, that's what the market, that's, that's what these are selling for. Um, if the content of the piece is different, meaning yeah. that your, your pers the persona that you're trying to target is different, um, you have to be thinking about that first, even you know, even if it's like, oh, but it's worth it. Like, I'm amazing. Like, of course it is. You know, think about yeah. it from the buyer's perspective. Is this something that they're going to, you know, make that plunge, make that purchase? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I feel like content has become a bit of a dirty word in the art world and the art market. And I get it. Cause I mean, who wants to say like the output of their life is just content, right? <laughs> it, it, I, 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 I get it. Like, I'm not, I'm, I'm there too, but like James hit a good point, right? Like what, I talked about complexity and I talked about size, but what you're painting, what you're photographing, that is ultimately going to be what resonates with the buyers. Not the fact that it's oil or not the fact that it's, you know, printed on a special paper. Ultimately it's what is in it. That's going to resonate. So if you're painting things that resonate and I'm not telling you to go make art that resonates with the richest people, I hope you're not taking that from this, unless that's really your authentic truth. That's what you want to do, think but go for, <laughs> go for it, go for it. I mean, if that's, if that's your thing, I, I totally get that. No judgment. But if what I really want you to do is think, you know, like close your eyes, but like, who do I want this? Whose walls do I want this on? A great thing to do. I love to do flip through architectural digest, 
they their editorial has gotten really good. They have Amy Astley. She's wonderful, like the younger editor now. Um, I love the, the interiors they show. And you see great people. Like the cover of the one we have right now is the woman who's in Umbrella Academy and the gentleman who's in Hamilton. And I'm, I'm so sorry, I don't remember their names right now. But um, it's an amazing home. It's in LA. And it's very, I, re, I look at it, I'm like, wow, I love this home. Like these people are so cool. If I were a, a visual artist, I would want to be on their walls, right? And then think about it. Like what commonalities do they share? They work in theater. They're, you know, 30 to 40. They are African-American. I mean, there's different things you can think about, about the, the people that you want to buy your art. So be, close your eyes and think, whose walls do I want this on? Not just like, I hope someone with enough money buys it and then I don't really care. Like, <laughs> You know, and you can have two to three avatars. I like capping it at three. Otherwise, it could get crazy. But capping it at three um, and then really envisioning that person and then describing them to yourself and then thinking about that and like, sorry, circling around the content and the pricing because that person like that you envision your art on their walls, their disposable income might just be a certain level. You have to just gel with that. You can't just be like, well, it's really good. And that's getting out of the art world mentality being like, I put 34 hours of effort into this. It's like, okay, but if the audience that your content is going towards just can't afford the price, then you're just going to be a, a fish, a, a lame duck. I mean, nothing will happen. Well, so. One other thing I feel like Alex and I just are bouncing off of this one question with <laughs> more, more notes, but um, you know, let's say that you're, you create uh, usually we'll make like three personas that we're targeting. Um, so let's say you make three and then someone comes along and they are like totally different than those three people and they want to buy your work. So the idea is not that you're, you're trying to exclude them. Like, no, no, you're not right. my persona. Like right, don't right, buy right. my art. No, of course. Like it's great if they buy it, but really the idea here is to focus in on these personas and making work that is for them instead of trying to make work that's like broad enough where anyone would want it because then you're going to get yeah. less effective results. So yeah, there's a I'd saying. I'd love to. Oh, oh, oh there's a saying. There's a saying. There is a saying. There's a saying in marketing. When you're talking to everyone, you're talking to no one. So never talk to everyone. Like talk to whoever, talk to this person. And it can evolve. These avatars, guys, they're not set in stone. You could revisit them every three months if you want, every six months, every two years, whatever. They should evolve. Mm -hmm. and, so, and again, with your price of your work and like what you sell for, that should evolve too. We're not telling you like just pigeonhole yourself and sell $500 paintings for the rest of your life. We're saying like, get the action moving, get people excited. And also remember your audience, the people who buy your art, they are going to improve in their careers, their lifestyles, their homes. They're going to move from apartments to houses. They're going to get a second house like our friend Lori. And then they will buy more from you and larger and pay higher prices. So evolve your collectors too. You're not stuck. It's just getting that it's getting out of that second gear and really just kicking it into higher gear. It's kind of like figuring out your prices, the avatars of the people you're trying to sell to. You should start out with a ballpark of yep. what you think it is based on, you know, who right. you've already sold to and who's already expressed interest in your art. And then let it evolve from there yeah. as you discover more. And I want to say one more thing about this because because <laughs> James mentioned like, you're not trying to exclude anybody. It's not like, well, you don't fit my avatar. And <laughs> so if you start to see somebody like a, a, an avatar type of person buying your art kind of frequently, organically through fairs or Instagram or whatever, 
maybe just make an avatar for them. You know, James, um, I'm just giving you an example. Like, yeah. uh, James realized that, uh, mothers of gay sons buy his yeah. art <laughs> and, and that's cool. Cause then you can I, think I, about like, you know, you can target that audience on Facebook ads. You can, uh, you can make a page on your website about it. I mean, like there's a lot you can do when you have that knowledge, you're not like pushing away knowledge. You're still taking in new stuff, but you start with like, okay, I think my audience is, you know, 40 to 55 gay men, whatever. But mm-hmm. like, then you find out that moms are like, Oh my God, this is so Which, cool for it, my son. It was like, something I had yeah. not thought about before. And right. then it kept happening. So, uh, so now I have to think about that. Yep. So. <laughs> wow. Okay. Super, super important. And I also want to want to point out one more thing. So first I want to completely concur with, with the way that you're describing it. So somebody comes and, and, and demonstrates interest in your work, but they're not the avatar that you thought they were going to be, this should ring a bell in your mind saying, maybe I need to add something or adjust something yeah. with how I'm imagining my work is being perceived. Because I've definitely had this experience specifically in Superfine, where people who were interested in my work were not exactly the people that I predicted would be. And it it became like this common theme that another kind of person that I never imagined I was talking to or appealing to, um, it, it required me to adjust my, my avatar sheet. Uh, if I, if I have, if the sheet that is in the back of my mind, uh, but an- <laughs> another thing that I want to add about this, because this is so critically important and also shows something that I've changed about the way that I behave between the first time I did super fine. And the second time I did super fine, knowing who your work is speaking to and who has, um, the higher likelihood to buy your art should change the way that you're, uh, how would you say, behaving on the floor, right? Because you're one artist, you're one artist, you're there in the art fair, and you're talking to people and you're, you're, you're trying to help people connect with your work and then hopefully sell it. So the way that you are using your time is actually really, really valuable. And the first time that I showed in Superfine, I had a, a whole body of work uh, that was inspired by my time in the Israeli army. Now, the people that I should have been talking to more were, you know, people who are somewhat sympathetic to my life experience and that might actually want to take one of those paintings and, and, and put them in their home. But instead of doing that, uh, the argumentative side of me took over and I just spent a lot of time just arguing politics with people because, <laughs> obvi- <laughs> because obviously if I have like paintings of soldiers, it's going to definitely give rise to some political discussions. And being the political nerd that I am, I was like having fun with it. But then only later, like weeks after the fair, I was thinking, was that the best use of my time? (laughs) And it it, it really probably isn't. And I think something really important to understand about that is, despite the fact that when I painted these paintings, I wanted political debates to get stirred up. Like that's the purpose of the painting, but that's still not my job. I should hope that other people who are looking at my work are arguing amongst each other, but I don't, I don't get to participate in that argument because as the artist, that is a waste of my time. And if I'm arguing politics, then I'm participating in my work as an observer. And I don't want to be participating in my work as an observer because I need to move these pieces. I need to sell them. Uh, And that's something that I, completely changed. Uh, and the second time I did super fine, I was a completely different person. It really, I mean, it did, it did much better. So it's extremely important to also note when you're doing something that is suboptimal or is not 
totally in line with with your best interests, not to fall into the place of saying, oh, you know, I made a mistake. I really botched that opportunity. Just do, you know, it's it's exactly how how James, you were describing uh, those shows. You know, you say, okay, something didn't work as well as, as I planned. Why? Can I make changes? Can I make adjustment to my strategy? And then you come back at it with a different approach and 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 hopefully you'll see a different result. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and that brings up, you know, because we do have plenty of art fair experience, um, something that we've seen as a big faux pas when artists participate in art fairs. But this could be the same if you're, you know, hosting a gallery show or a pop up or whatever is the artist will come and they'll be extremely elegantly dressed and they will sit and wait. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, OK, or, or read a book or read a book, read a, read a book. Is, sake, I mean, please, please do not. Don't bring a book. Like, don't, just, just don't even bring the don't book. Don't bring a book. Like, leave don't it, yeah. leave, leave your phone. Right. Like whatever you out can, of sight, whatever you can do to stay engaged. It's it's kind of like I mean, it's really like a high school dance. Like, you know, you once you actually get out there and start moving around, like no one else can dance either. So like you'll have more fun and you'll have more results. Um, if you'll you have more results, okay, yeah, okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. all right, all right. But, but, but <laughs> you get my point. You get my point. That mixed metaphor, but you get my point. Um, but no, I mean, it's like, you know, you're sitting there going, no one's talking to me. No one wants to come over. This is boring. And then meanwhile, you're sitting on as, the bleacher. Right. Like, yeah. As soon as you stand up and make eye contact and smile at a couple of people and say, hello, um, you start to see results. So I think just adapting that mentality of like, you know, and I mean, sometimes, you know, the guy, and we say dress neatly, dress, let dress well, whatever. Sometimes the guy who's covered in paint gets all the sales and the person who's like in an evening gown doesn't. And so I think just kind of looking at that. And again, we're not telling you to change your character and not be who you are and not be authentic. You absolutely should be authentic. But I mean, like RuPaul says, like everything is drag, right? Like, I mean, we all are, uh, we're all dressing up for something. So yeah. let's, you know, let at least let it serve you but at the same time think about your avatar and if your avatar is going to respond well to you being in that elegant evening dress sure then you know you know if if they're like let's say they would recognize the designer label or i don't know something (laughs) like that or they just like you know are are going to think that you know at the opening of a show it's it's proper to be dressed nicely you know they're not saying not to dress nicely yeah (laughs) versus if you're with that like young guy who's maybe like been to burning man recently and they're going to really respond to you being covered in paint and they're gonna be like whoa i love those pants like i want to put paint on my pants and you're like you should do that and then and then you strike up a conversation you know but again it flows down from that avatar and thinking about who you're planning to be talking to and like how you want to be looking, talking, addressing them, standing, all this stuff. And it's, it's, I don't want to sound like it's like, whoa, there's a million things you got to do. Like just act naturally, but think about, you know, who you're doing it for. So I also want to add, I have in recent years grown very skeptical of this idea of an authentic self that is perceivable to us because too many examples in my life have demonstrated that things that I thought were not my authentic self became more authentic and more self than I could have ever imagined. Most recently, uh, I don't know if you've heard, there's this thing called COVID running around and <laughs> it changed the world very profoundly. Now, before, right. before COVID hit, I taught painting and drawing in person and exclusively in person. And I was one of those people who cast you know, doubt on the ability to paint and, and to teach painting online. I was like, no, I got to be there. I got to be able to, you know, shove my palette knife into their palette and like paint on their painting and demonstrate. I was so stubborn. And I was the kind of person who would say, it's not my authentic self. 
to believe that painting can be taught online. And here I am just a year or so after, and I have done a complete 180 degrees on that. Like today, I think that what I can do online sometimes is superior and is actually better than anything that I could do in person. So sometimes we think about ourselves that, you know, this is not authentic, this is not me, but it's actually your ego playing tricks on you and trying to keep you in your comfort zone, trying to keep you from changing because our ego is allergic to difficult changes that we have to make to ourselves as people in order to grow and evolve. And so we just kind of talk about this authenticity thing as, as, as really an excuse to not make the necessary changes. So don't, don't, I would, I would suggest to people to really, if you think you know who you are, eh, I mean, <laughs> talk to me when you're like 80 and we're writing about your career. But if you're like me and you're in your thirties, I'm not really totally sure any of us knows who we are quite yet. Yeah. And I I riff off that a little bit. Um, I interviewed on our podcast, Christopher Jobson uh, last week, who's the founder of Colossal Magazine, which is a huge, you know, art reference, millions and millions of hits a month. Um, A lot of artists, you know, want to be featured there. Wonderful guy. I interviewed him Um, and how he got into founding an online art magazine and blog and influential culture, you know, spot um, is he was sitting in jury duty. And he had nothing to do because there were no cases. So he made a list of 100 things he wanted to do in that year, which I'm planning to do this week. Uh, he made a list of 100 things he wanted to do. Easy things like read a book, more difficult things like, the you know, you could schedule a guitar lesson and learn how to play guitar, right? And then some were like, start a blog, you know? And he did 70 or 80 of them within the first few months, the easy ones. And he was left with these 20 to 30 things he didn't really want to do. One of them was start a blog. He didn't really want to do it. It was, he never thought he was a blogger, but it was like, he heard about blogs. It was like the early 2000s. People were like, oh yeah, do a blog. So he made a blog and he did it every day and they get millions of hits. It's his main business. It's his life's passion. It's what he loves to do. But if you asked him that day when he made that list and the six months later, when he didn't do that, he'd be like, yeah, that's not my thing I was thinking of doing. You know, it's like me being like, I don't want to be a mixed MMA fighter, but you know, maybe- I do. You do. Cool. Yeah, that's awesome. But, let, but let's say I, you know, I say, no, 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 that's so against my personality. I don't want to do it. Then I go and I do it and I have fun. What am I going to do? Tell myself I didn't like it. Like you have to be willing to adapt. So again, I, I agree with that challenge of this, like, I know my authentic self thing and just, just kind of have fun with it guys. And I mean, don't, don't take it too seriously. If you want to, you know, you think that your, your avatar to fair is going to respond well to a certain thing, just dress up, like have fun dressing up. And then if it doesn't feel right, don't do it again, but like, just, just have fun and see how it goes. And, you know, that's my, my input on everything. <laughs> yeah. And another example that I have to give on that is I'm kind of indebted to a, to a person who basically had to convince me to take Instagram seriously because it was so against my authentic self. My authentic self is the self that sits on a chair and paints and occasionally puts the chair aside and paints. But you know, <laughs> for me, for me to actually be posting on Instagram every day has nothing to do with authentic and has nothing to do with self, but you know, right now I recognize that having pushed myself outside of this very limited comfort zone called my studio to do some things that I didn't think were totally me, naturally me, um, really helped me grow, helped me evolve, helped me uh, navigate waters that are not necessarily, you know, 
my own neighborhood. And, 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 and only then when you push yourself into more dangerous and, and, and unfamiliar territories, do you really find out who you really are and, and what you can really do. So I, I highly recommend to people don't, don't obsess about like, Oh, this is, this is who I am. This is what I do. And, and all the other stuff that, you know, just, just don't do that. And, and another thing that I, I wanted to add is you were talking about, I think you had it under the, the placement category in, in our pillars when you were discussing having a set of different prices and a set of different sizes. Um, or maybe you didn't put it there, but I want to kind of put it there with this analogy. I wanted to say that this, this doesn't only go towards um, facing different avatars and different people with different budgets. What I find is that these works contextualize each other in a very important way. So in the first, in the first uh, super find that I did, I had everything basically in the same price range. But I looked at another, um, another artist's booth there and I saw she did something really phenomenal. Um, she had one giant piece, which was definitely like it was, it said not for sale. And then she had a lot of small pieces around it that were for sale. And, I, I, and even if that large piece would have been for sale, obviously it would have been like 10 times the price. But people look at that big piece from afar and they say, oh my God, that's shocking. Walk up close, say, okay, I can't buy that, but I can <laughs> buy the smaller one. I can buy the smaller one. So when people actually, you know, and I, I, did, I did that in the second super find that I did. If you recall, I had one big yep. piece of two challah breads like, big and shiny to to pull people in and then i had the smaller ones and those were flying off the walls and in in my in my opinion what happens there is is actually pretty sophisticated psychologically because these people who bought the small paintings of the bread feel like they actually took a piece of the big bread with them if they hadn't seen that big painting of the two breads which they couldn't afford and didn't buy i'm not even sure that they would have bought the small one so I think that's actually very important to point out. Absolutely. And I want to underscore something you said, Ken, the works contextualize each other. That means it's reciprocal. It doesn't just mean you're going to sell the smaller works because of the big one. You'll often sell the big one because of the small ones. And I've seen the opposite, like Kelly Moykins in DC, where you know day one, she sold a couple small ones. And then by day two or three, she sold the biggest one on the wall because like people see oh, the small ones were $800. The big one is only 4,500 and it's more than, my math is terrible, but it's more than five times the size. So, you know, I'm getting a great deal with that. And, um, and there's a word for this. It, it is a sophisticated psychological thing. It's called anchoring bias. Mm. Before, before someone has walked in your booth or your gallery, they have no clue what your work is worth. They're, they're, what is it anchored to? Is it anchored to Picasso or Jeff Koons? They don't have any clue. When they walk in and they see a large, a small, and we're using size here, guys, but I mean, it could be some are charcoal drawings, some are complete paintings. It could be like summer sculpture. I'm, size is the easiest thing to talk about. So um, they come in and they see, oh, the smaller are 700, the medium are 2000, the big one is 10,000. Um, now they're anchored. Like you have given them something to anchor your pricing to. And the bias, they're not looking at how does, 700 compared to something else out in the world for 700 because they don't remember it. Um, they're looking at how it compares to other things they see in the same room. We all do that in every single store we walk into. Of course, you know, the like super price conscious maven out there who like knows the price of Tide here and the price of Tide there. But most of us go and we look at a shelf and go, this is seven, this is five, this is three. Uh, I'll go for the five. And that actually, that actually is really interesting because mm-hmm. some people the majority of people go right down the middle 
Some people always go the cheapest route, but at least they bought something. And some people always go the most expensive route because they believe that the quality goes up with the price. So having a spread of prices, it it leans into that reality of how human beings are and how we choose things. And you're you're being extremely smart by doing that. So I think it's a really vital thing to do. I'm glad you took that cue, Ken. And I, I wanna I wanna add something to that. I think you're you're touching on something super important where people are essentially estimating mathematically. It's like, oh, this thing sold for 500. Therefore, if that thing is is 4,000 and it's you know more than whatever the amount of size that it is, then if that's worth it, then this also is worth it. And I think something really important um, to kind of point out there is that this system starts to roll down the hill, at least in my experience, once there's one red dot on the wall. When there's, when there's one sale, suddenly people can start making this connection. Okay, this sold, this is that price, this is that size. The other thing that's double the price, but more than double the size, so probably that's also legitimate. But for that first sell, that's when I feel like it's, it's, um, it's tricky before that point. So something that I actually do in, in, in art fairs, I've done that twice, is if somebody's interested in my work not in an art fair situation, they're saying, okay, listen, I want that uh, in an unrelated environment, like whether or not they're a studio visit or social media or whatever. I actually do the following. I say, listen, I'm going to sell it to you for less and I'm going to reserve it for you, but come in person and buy it in my next fair. That's something that I do because as soon as you get somebody at the opening to buy a piece, they were going to buy it anyway. But if you can get them to buy it at the fair so that you have a red dot on the wall opening night, then you're really set up for success. Some people are so, uh, and you can understand that, right? But they're, they're so worried about losing a potential sale. Uh, and actually, timing has so much to do with how your next sales are going to are going to unfold. So if you're if you're smart about how you're going to navigate your relationships with your buyers and 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 make sure that they happen kind of in public, this can actually encourage more people to jump in and 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 take take a painting home with them. Yeah, you you read my mind Ken. I was going to bring up that example because we talked about it a little bit on when you were on our podcast and um and I think that's that's incredible advice and I mean like to your point, if we have a spread of prices on the wall, I mean, your Instagram followers, maybe their budget is still, it's just not high because it's Instagram. Maybe it's three to 500 or something. It, yeah. Like you said, offer a slight discount, but then they have to buy it at the show. And then you can authentically have a red dot. And I do want to add real quick. I know James has something to say, but um, <laughs> artists, if you're in a fair, don't ever fake it though. Like have a sale. Don't fake it because you can screw yourself really bad. Someone comes and they do want something that you put a red dot and then you kind of have to be like, well, I put one, but it's not really sold. It it undermines the trust element. And I think you don't want to fake it. But if you can engineer it in such a way that it's authentically sold on opening night, your confidence goes up. Other buyers' confidence goes up. And you start to see not just the, that size and that price point, but you start to see other things sell as well. So that's so important. And also, like I want to point out further embarrassment to discourage people from doing these fake things because if you've if you've faked the fact that some something sold just to kind of trigger the re- the reaction that I was talking about, then you're not putting that piece in any future art fair. Like that piece is if you've done it to a piece that you actually like, like how are you ever going to sell that again? Just simply, I, I want to. Yeah just stress what you just said right now. Like 
No, you want you want to you want to control the timing, but you don't want to fake sales. That's a bad idea. It's it's hard to dig yourself out of a, yes. a lie. Yes. Um, so what I was going to mention, and I think that's a, an amazing strategy, like already getting that piece sold and then having them like pick up the piece on opening night or at the show um, so that you can authentically have it sold. Um, let's say you, you don't already have that piece sold, but you're trying to get that same dollar in the tip jar effect. Um, what I would recommend is having two colors of dots. So you have like a red dot or in our case, a pink dot um, for when the piece is sold. And then let's say you have a yellow dot um, and you can use that as a strategy for for two reasons. One, to do what we're talking about right now and uh, give this sense of action that's already happening in your booth. Like people are already interested. They're already buying. Um, but if someone's really interested, but they're not ready to, to jump on it, they're like, ooh, let me think about this piece. Well, then you can go to them and you can say, would you like me to place this piece on hold for you for 24 hours? I won't sell it to anyone else in that time. Give you a bit of time to think about it. And then we can touch base tomorrow and see what you think. And then you can put a yellow dot on that. Uh, and as you're talking to more people at the show, if they're like, oh, is this piece already sold? You can say, no, it's already, um, or it's just being held for someone um, you know, for, for 24 hours. If they end up not buying it, um, then I can follow up with you at that time. And then you're creating this chain effect where if that first person doesn't buy it, well, you already have another person mm. that you you've sort of given this impetus, like, like, give me your email and I'll follow up with you. And then you just got their email instead of them just walking away yeah. uh, and being like, yeah, I'll, I'll come back if I think about it. Um, so you can use that as a, a, you know, a way to create that action even before you've actually sold the pieces uh, and then you're going to end up selling more from that. So, yeah. Brilliant. I want to, I want to ask, I want to ask one more thing or maybe one, maybe, maybe more than one more thing. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, but, <laughs> but at least one more thing. So these days we have, we have several art fairs that are usually happening simultaneously, right? That's kind of like every city has, okay, we have this period of time. Then all the art fairs are happening at the same time, kind of in an overwhelming fashion. How how do you look when you when you think about your fair about Superfine? How do you distinguish yourself from the rest? And what do you want like your personal voice to really like? Why are we going specifically to Superfine? What are we finding there? What what makes you special? For sure. Um, can I take that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So a couple of things I would say. Okay. So for one, that kind of like mass art fair thing really is confined to like New York, Miami, and Los Angeles in the U.S. There's really not any other cities that have that yet. Um, and as we've grown, we've really, we've really um, seen that that's where we're the direction we're going. And we'll always have our New York base, our LA base. Um, but, you know, cities like Washington, DC, Denver, St. Petersburg, Florida, uh, Seattle, like all these cities have the audience that we're looking for, um, but they don't have that massive art week kind of thing. So that just to kind of clarify, that's something we really do see an opportunity. And also for artists out there who either want to participate in Superfine or even just want to like host a show, um, just think about that it doesn't have to be like New York Art Week, Miami Art Week, or LA Art Week for you to do it. Um, there are actually a lot of intrinsic challenges of the, being parts of those weeks. Um, I, you know, th there's, there's, it's a double-edged sword. Um, you do get some interesting people in town who wouldn't be there, but you also are competing for attention. Um, I always, I always differentiate competing for attention from competing the actual like experience and product. Um, th that is probably the biggest 
issue with like Miami art week in December is that there's so many shows and like, even when you're the best show in town, I mean, we, we were, you know, we were voted uh, number one art fair in Miami in 2017. And, you know, we still don't get the attendance we get in other cities, at least during that week. So one of the things we're doing, and I'm, I'm be a little tangent here, but um, one of the things we're doing in 2022 is we're relaunching Miami, uh, Superfine Miami, which was one of our most popular fairs for artists. I mean, we, we would sell that fair out easily. Um, we're relaunching it in early March, which is mm. still, yeah, so it's still winter in Miami. It's actually peak season. So December's not peak season in Miami. People like to be up north for the holidays. So like uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas. So, I mean, Art Basel engineered this week and it's great, whatever, but it's actually not normally peak season. So March is peak season. Um, you get all the out-of-towners, you get all the locals are eager. It's a few months after Christmas, so people have, or the holidays, right? And so people have already, you know, recovered from their wounds of spending their budget on, on presents. And so it's really our thought is to kind of have our own art week and our own time in Miami, which is a city that's really close to our hearts on Miami Beach. Um, so how we've differentiated when we're, you know, when there's other shows out there or just in the larger sphere of the different art fairs, um, Superfine is always a fun, accessible experience for anybody walking in. Um, the way we target our audience, and we, we often talk about pre-qualified buyers, which is this kind of like, you know, I don't know, like sounds like something a little bit condescending, but pre-qualified buyers. And that's done by using the avatar method. So we think about, you know, we're actually thinking about who's going to come in and actually buy art. And we're, I would say we're rethinking that. So we're not just like back to our earlier point. We're not like, okay, well, these are a hundred people that have bought 10 pieces in the past. We're thinking like who is likely to buy art. And then we're targeting them through digital marketing. Uh, we're putting them through a qualification step, which is like where they buy the tickets. So it's very clear when you're buying a ticket for Superfine that you're attending an event where you're supposed to buy art. That's what you're there for. There are artists here. They're talking about their art. Uh, it's it's We put the price points. We put like a lot of information that is about buying art. And that's why 20 to 25% of our visitors actually make a purchase at the show and then even more purchase over time because they are already prepared. That's what they're there for. Like if you went to a craft beer festival, you wouldn't be surprised that you're buying beer there because that's what it is. Either you buy a ticket that includes the beer, which exists, or you're going to an open area and there's, you know, beer and there's barbecue and you're going to buy something and buy something. You're not going there to like observe it. And that's kind of the, the change that we've really tried to make with Superfine is this is part of the experience. It's not separate from it. We're not turning you away at the door if you just want to look, if you're an art student, you want to get inspiration. There's nothing wrong with that. We're not like excluding you, but we're really making it accessible to buy art and making it clear that that is the focus of the event. Um, it's not the party. It's not the DJ. It's not the, you know, the installation piece in the middle, which we still do, which is cool. But like, it's really about buying art and meeting artists and connecting with them even more than the buying the connecting part is really what we're about and that's the thing that has resonated in almost all of our cities and it's how we how we do it <laughs> yeah absolutely one, one other thing i'd like to add so like alex mentioned we're really focusing on cities that there isn't an art week for already um i guess rather than a to clarify we're not looking to avoid art weeks we are just not making that part of our decision process. Right? We're not like, mm. oh, like we're yeah. coming to LA, like, you know, let's make sure it's whatever weekend yeah. all the fairs are, are. We're like, what weekend makes most sense? Like for Superfine as, you know, like 
when is yep. the the weather nicest more than yep. like when is there we, we actually ran away from the art week in la we were like we don't want to be a part of that <laughs> so we're doing something different but um we do still have the fair sometimes during an art week um like for instance if it's in new york um and i think actually this fall we're not but usually we are um what we do is we're targeting primarily people who live there so uh, and Art Week is this very international thing. Everyone around the world who cares about art knows when an Art Week is happening in New York and they fly in for it. Uh, and then also, uh, like we've talked about before, most art fairs have galleries as their main exhibitors instead of independent artists. Those galleries are bringing their clients and those galleries are also coming from all over the world. Um, so it becomes this very, uh, yeah, just a very international audience. Uh, for us, I would say at least 90%, if not like more than that, um, of our audience is coming from local. We, we target specific zip codes um, that fit the personas that we're targeting. Um, and that's really great for a couple of reasons. One, we're not competing for that same audience that all of the other art fairs are. We're, we're doing something different. Um, and then also... Uh, if you are an artist who's local uh, to the city that you're exhibiting in. So if you're in New York or you're in New Jersey or, or Boston or something like that, and you're coming in for the fair, um, you know, those are people that you can have a long-term relationship with uh, year round uh, because they're not, they're not flying back to, you know, Basel or, or wherever they're coming yeah. from. So um, yeah. 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 Those are some, some other ways we yeah. And again, it's not like we're turning anyone away at the door. It's like, you know, as you get to a certain profile, like we have, I mean, you're going to attract attention from others, but our emphasis is always on, like, we're not advertising in like magazines in Europe. We're really targeting the 10 mile radius of Manhattan because there's, you know, it's the most affluent place in the world. There's, there's, there's already plenty of people. There's, yeah, there's <laughs> 400,000 millionaires in New York city. There's the median income is $130,000. I mean, things have Again, they've changed a little with COVID, but they're returning to normal and and probably more than normal. So it's really no need for us to try to brand outside of the city. The city is such an, a valuable resource for us. Um, and yeah, and same with Miami I and mean, same with LA. Like we don't have to be like part of the big LA freeze extravaganza. We just have to target our audience who lives in LA, who lives in specific zip codes and bring them to the show. Yeah, that's it. And, and one more thing to add. Uh, specifically with Miami. Uh, so the reason that we're coming back is, is Miami itself, people who actually live there. Um, they fit the personas, the, the audience that we're trying to target a lot more than they did a few years ago. Um, there's been a huge influx of, of, uh, like, you know, Silicon Valley, uh, Tech companies, tech companies and every, yeah, yeah. A lot, a lot of new blood has come into Miami yeah. over the past few years. A couple of great articles have come out. And I think a lot of it is just people want a, a different quality of life. And I think COVID has woken a lot of people up to that and just being like, okay, do I really want to live in like the financial district? Like, no. So yeah, um, yeah so Ken, but, Ken shaking his head. Yeah. So, so, lot, so it really has adapted and we have a great relationship with the city of Miami Beach. So really that's, you know, we, we hemmed and hawed over whether to, to try to rejoin Art Week. And we're like, nah, we always, we never right. liked doing it. Well, so, but from a you know, practical perspective, you know, December, it's just hard to get around Miami. It's not that big. Yep. There's only a few streets. So it is so packed and like just there's so much noise during Miami Art Week in December um, that even if we're targeting 
uh, just the people who live there, they're kind of like, they're peacing out. They're, they're not leaving their homes. They don't want to sit in traffic all day. (laughs) Um, so being there in March, it just makes it easier to, to, uh, target those people who, you know, probably are not even like obsessing over December, just like, like can't get around literally. So yeah. 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 Wow. Oh my God. I re I'm, you guys make me miss Miami. I gotta, <laughs> we got, we gotta, we gotta hang out in Miami. Yeah. Alex and James, you've been so generous with your time. Maybe you can let us uh, let people know where they can find out more about you, more about Superfine. Good. Yeah. Um. You can go to www.superfine.world uh, to learn more about us. Uh, we also have a great podcast if you'd like to listen to that. Um, and if you just click the podcast link at the top, you will find that. Um, if you are interested in exhibiting in the fair, uh, you can send me an email at james at superfine.world. Um, or there's also a link at the top of our website where you can, um, uh, it says sell your art and you can click that and learn more about uh, what makes Superfine different than other fairs and why it might be a good fit for you. Uh, and then besides that, if you just want to, you know, follow us on Instagram, we are at Superfine Art Fair. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, amazing. And I also, I want to, I want to drill and recommend that everybody subscribe to the Artist Business Plan podcast run by James and Alex. It is absolutely a valuable resource for all of us paint slingers out there. So Alex and James, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, the pleasure is all ours. Thank you so much, Ken. Thanks, Ken. Thank you for joining me. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to see it grow, please take a moment to subscribe, rate it highly, and share it with a friend. If you'd like to become a supporter of the show and have access to exclusive content, please consider signing up as a patron at patreon.com slash kengoshen. For online lessons, please visit kengoshen.com slash lessons. Thanks again, and see you next time.